Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome everybody to Center Court with Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson. I'm Jason Zone Fisher. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Did you have a great Thanksgiving, Ralph? How was it? Well, it wasn't the normal Thanksgiving, Jason. It was uh, turkeyless, uh, ham only, and uh, not many people like normal. So we shut it down. Uh, we all cooked. My mom cooked one of, a couple of dishes of hers. I cooked a little bit, and my sister and her boyfriend cooked. So we had fun, but uh, it was not the normal Thanksgiving uh, that we normally have. How about you? Uh, yeah, we had a great Thanksgiving. It was, uh, like you said, not normal. Uh, it was it was different this year. It's hard to be together and celebrate the same ways, but we did have a turkey and a delicious meal, and it was just nice to be with uh, some, some family all together, and uh, uh, we have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and this was her first Thanksgiving of really sort of understanding what the holiday is all about, so that, that was a lot of fun. But I want to know, Ralph, you said you cooked. What, what is your specialty? What did you cook? Well, I was going to ask you, what, did you cook anything, or did you clean up, or did you? what was your part? What role did was, you play? I was bartender. You know, okay, that's, like, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah, that's important too. You know, I make sure everyone, you know, has the drink that they need and I, I help with that. I, I am not so good in the kitchen. What, what did you cook though? Uh, I had the, I had the broccoli dish, broccoli and cheese. Oh, uh, we had mac and cheese, broccoli, corn on the cob, ham, uh, sweet potatoes, uh, you know, pumpkin, and uh, pumpkin pie, sweet potato pie, and uh, um, uh, iron skillet. Apple pie, my mother made. So we had a little bit of something, something there. So not the normal turkey, the dressing, the gravy, none of that happened. But my mom says she'll do that for Christmas. So I look forward to that. Well, you've told me before, your favorite meal of all time is anything that uh, that your your mom is cooking. She knows what she's doing in the kitchen. Yeah, she can get it in. That's for sure. So <laughs> nice. it wasn't normal, but she promised she would do it later. So I would get it for Christmas. Nice. A uh, nice Thanksgiving in Virginia. At least you could be with your parents and some of the family all together. Uh, and we have a great episode today that we're going to talk about. We have a Hall of Fame legendary guest, Spencer Haywood. And some people may know his name, but people don't really truly know his story. So I'm excited to get into it with him today because he has uh, an unbelievable story to tell and more people need to know it. I think he's truly underappreciated. Well, I mean, the story is amazing once you start to hear it. So I'm looking forward to this as well, knowing him from the Hall of Fame and being inducted and he's inducted and spending some time over the last number of years and really truly understanding the story. He was one of the guys that made it accessible for guys to come out of school and go into the NBA. So all these guys are standing on Spencer Hayward's shoulders. That's right. We'll get into that. We'll also get into uh, some of his uh battles with with mental health and the importance of it and that's why we've partnered with movember uh, an incredible charity one of the leading charities dedicated to men's health not just testicular cancer and prostate cancer but also mental health awareness and we get into all that sort of stuff uh, i know prostate cancer is something that has affected spencer it's affected your family ralph and uh and we wanted to partner with movember to discuss all of these issues because they're the kind of things that guys don't normally talk about well guys don't normally usually go to the doctor so you know it's all of these things happen if you go to the doctor and get your regular checkups 
uh, then you can stave off some of the stuff as well. But just more of everything, it's been pretty fun. You see, your mustache and mine looks somewhat similar. We like a Groucho Marx crew, but it's good. But uh, <laughs> it, it's fun to have it. It's fun to get it back. People always like, oh, you got the mustache back. I haven't had it since 1994, so it's kind of been kind of crazy to grow it back. Feel it. It feels funny. It's itching, but um, mm-hmm. you know it's coming. It's not too bad. But yeah, this whole November thing has been a while. Where I look forward to you know continue that maybe in the years to come because of a. Uh, prostate cancer that my dad had, lung cancer as well. So it's near and dear to my heart. Well, the mustache looks good on you, Ralph. It looks almost normal. You know, it was a good look back then and you brought it back. You don't age. Me, this is a weird thing. It looks like I got a, a bug loose on my face or something, a slug crawling across. Well, you, well, you're used to a beard. So, you know, a couple more days, your stuff will grow back. So it'll be thicker than it was. But used to the full beard and and uh, not just the mustache. So it looks funny because I'm not used to it that way. But, you know, yeah. it's still good. Yeah, yeah, it's freaking me out. I cannot look at myself right now. It has thrown me off big time, uh, but but it's all for a good cause. Now, before we get into today's episode, we do want to address there's going to be some big changes coming up with Center Court in the future. And we want to thank all of you for listening and following our podcast journey along the way. Uh, this is something that has begun during quarantine through uh, our friendship together, Ralph, and we've had incredible guests on together, but things are moving and a changing quickly. So why don't you let uh, the viewers and the listeners know about what the, the future of Center Court has in store? Well, there'll be some announcements soon. And uh, actually, this may be the last way, it's, uh, last episode is shaped this way, but we look forward to potentially continuing what we do in some capacity over the network. It'll be on the new Winter Circle Network that we have created and trying to figure out how shows work. So we'll be making those announcements sometime soon. You guys out there, stay tuned. There'll be some exciting things that happen, and I look forward to it. Absolutely. All right. So we'll keep you posted on all of that coming soon. But in the meantime, we're going to get into our episode today with our very special guest, the legendary Spencer Haywood. He's a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame, an Olympic gold medalist. He's an NBA champion, an ABA MVP and Rookie of the Year in the same season, four-time NBA All-Star, two-time NBA all NBA first team member uh, his number 24 retired by the Seattle Supersonics but the stories that he has are legendary and his impact on the game and how players are able to enter the NBA before uh, either right out of high school or or enter early from college is because of him and we'll get into all of that here today on center court so without further ado let's bring him on here he is Spencer Haywood All right, we are so excited to have another legend in the house today joining us on Center Court, a Hall of Famer. This man uh, has an incredible story, and more people need to know his story. He's an Olympic gold medalist, an NBA champion, an ABA MVP, and Rookie of the Year in the same season, four-time NBA All-Star. His numbers retired by the Seattle Supersonics, but his legacy and importance to the impact that he had on the game and on our culture we're going to get into on today's episode and i'm so honored to have joining us today on center court the one and only spencer haywood spencer thank you for being here thank you thank you and i would get the jump ball if ralph and i was doing the jump ball at center court i would get it you oh. see this you see this picture right here <laughs> you see well, that picture right there shade on the picture oh, i just want to make sure you know i, I had vertical leaps so it's good I know you did. I know, but oh, I know man. you can jump. I know you can get off the ground, so it's, it's yeah. okay. 
Gosh, Ralph, you, what are you growing that mustache for? Yeah, you know, since I haven't had a, I mean, I'm like you, right? Uh, you haven't had a mustache for a long time either. Right, right. I think you should grow one. I'm going to grow one. Okay, you're going to grow one. But uh, yeah, I, in the my, my daughter, I kissed her and she said, Daddy, a mustache hurts, so I, I shaved it off. So when this no, November thing came up about prostate cancer, and out of, I could honor my father because he had prostate cancer and we got him fixed. He had lung cancer as well. I got that fixed. So mm -hmm. the team here said, bring back the staff. So I, I bought it back. And it feels funny because it itches and growing <laughs> and all that. But, you know, I'll bring it back for a worthy cause to honor my father for sure. That's beautiful. Beautiful. It's a good cause and it looks good on you, Ralph. We're glad you brought this. I, I mean, you can I, grow I, a mustache. I prefer the beard, but I mean, I'll take the mustache. Yeah, there you go. I mean, we can, we got to go back in the archive and find a, I'm going to do that, find a picture we can post on social media with you and the beard and the mustache. We got to do that. That's right. Well, you, you mentioned Movember, Ralph, and that is the, the reason you grew back the stash. It's obviously a great cause. I know prostate cancer is something that's, you know, uh, affected you in your life and, and you as well, Spencer. I know that's uh, yeah. a cause that you really want to uh, raise awareness for as well. Um, can you share some of your own personal journey? Well, let me just just share my, my, my story about prostate cancer. Um, 10 years ago, my brother, uh, came to me and said, I have prostate cancer. And he had went to Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit and he had his prostate removed and he's been fine since. And like seven, like three years later, I, I mean, my PSA was kept jumping and I had my PSA, which is, you know, just your blood work. It's nothing really, no big fingers going up your butt. <laughs> <laughs> Just your blood work, fellas. Okay. Not right. a big deal. It's just a needle in your arm. It's good. You yeah, when, it, yeah. You, when you're doing your physical, <laughs> you, you, they, they, take, they, they say, well, look, let's, let's look at your PSA. And my PSA count kept going up. So I, then I did a bi biopsy. Now, that was a little tight because they have to go inside behind in the buttocks area. And then they snip a little bit of your, of your biopsy there from the butt and then they, they're from your prostate and then they take it to the lab and then they, it came back, mine came back as positive. Mm. And right away I said, uh, let me call Jerry Colangelo, you know, Ralph, that's our- Yeah, 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 call the Google Godfather. And the Godfather. So mm -hmm. the Godfather, I had been doing his golf tournaments in Phoenix and we had a roving van that we went around and after the golf tournament and before the golf tournament, we would go and and allow communities that wasn't counted and wasn't the Hispanic, the African-American community, because that's where the numbers are higher. So we were doing, with the doctor on staff, we started doing, uh, looking at PSAs. And so I said, Jerry, what shall I do? And he says, well, you know, and I'm not outing him because he had, he's a recovering uh, prostate cancer survivor as well. He said, well, you know, you can try the seeds, you can try different, methods but i tell you what i did and i just had it removed and i said my brother had it removed so i then got in touch with henry ford hospital in michigan which had invented the robotic surgery which is called the da vinci surgery and so i also contacted usc the university of california um, hospital there and then we decided I would do it in Detroit because 
and my wife was still working at Blue Cross Blue Shield. So she was in the in the business of looking out for men and their health. So then I, I, I went to Detroit. I went in, had the surgery to remove it robotically. I was out in and out in three days. And so far, so good. I, there was some, I think it was 2014. And so far my, my prostate, my, my numbers are zero, zero, zero. And I've took it on as a, you know, something that I need to do because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a recovering person as well from substance. So I, I always say that I can't keep something if I don't give it away. So I went <laughs> in and started working with, <laughs> so I started working with uh, Jerry Colangelo. And then I started getting really involved with the Prostate Cancer uh, Foundation, which is Michael Milken's company. And they have like raised over a billion dollars now. And uh, so uh, Al Roker is one of our new spokesperson. He's going to be doing ads. He have done an ad beforehand to make awareness. Uh, and I've just been so enthused about telling men because you know, Ralph, for African-American men, mm -hmm. we have a higher number. Yeah. I think it's six out of 10, it's mm -hmm. our number. Whereas normally with normal people or, or say white, it's like four out of 10. And, and Asians and uh, Hispanics, I think it's five. So if you know 10 people, uh, wow. six of them are gonna be down if, if they're black. And so I just wanted to be involved. And so uh, I tell you, I, I, I've never felt so good about my life and about what I'm doing as to be involved in prostate cancer. And your show today is the reflection of how important it is for us to be involved and to educate, to tell people about this and your story about your father and so on. I, I kind of like wanted to hear from you on that issue. And what's your, what's your number? My number is uh, checked every year by uh, the same thing by the doctor. My number is one, mm -hmm. it's very low okay. uh, in the range that it needs to be in and I get a check. So when my dad, my dad had um, a, a hernia and I was in Atlanta, Georgia. My sister called me like, he can't go to the bathroom, something's wrong and he won't go to the hospital. So that's one of the things, especially in the African-American market. One, we don't go to the hospital. We, go to, mm -hmm. we don't go to the doctor. Uh, we may not have insurance, you know, so and so, so we got we got all these issues that we now found out even with this pandemic, right? That the right. inner city neighborhoods we don't have access to the best doctors. And the crazy part about this friends was this: I get him. I told my dad, I said, you know, get your GD, you know what, to the hospital. I'm on my way. I drove twelve eight hours straight from Atlanta, Georgia, to Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I met him in the hospital. So he had a hernia that was fairly large, and it was busted, and we lost him. So we went right to work on that, and then we saw he had two of them. So we went to write to work on that. And then he fell out of my arms the night after we took, took him from the hospital for the first hernia surgery. And then there was a heart attack, seizure, or stroke. So we took a lung x-ray. And then after the lung x-ray, the doctor said, well, there's a spot in his lung and it's cancer. I said, you just took x-ray. You didn't do a biopsy. You didn't do anything like that, right? Mm -hmm. So my point is the quality of care, and you mentioned it as well, where you had the robotic surgery in Detroit. The quality of care from a small town hospital to a university of Virginia hospital is night and day. Night and day. Night and day. 
So you can understand these inner city communities with the quality of care that they get, and they just want to give them some drugs, and those drugs cause many major problems. If you keep taking them, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And so we got him fixed. Uh, we did the prostate. We did. We had to do the lung first. Mm-hmm. The prostate was okay. It was it was elevated, but it was okay. It took some time. But we had to get rid of that lung. And the people in the small hospital said it spread. It's all over, et cetera. And I was talking to somebody today about my dad as well. So University of Virginia Hospital, we put a team around him, and within two months. We had a plan. We know what we we're doing. It hadn't spread. He did a biopsy. The doctor told him, and said, look, we do this biopsy. And my dad church sings in the church. He said, well, I might hit your larynx. You might not be the same like you used to. My dad said, you know, we'll see about that. Good Lord's on my side. <clears throat> they did the biopsy, went down, check it out. He came out of the biopsy singing the Lord's Prayer. So I knew at that point in time that he was going to be all right because of his mentality. But the care in this country sucks because it's just totally night and day in the community. So guys out there need to go get their, their PSA and their blood checks on a yearly basis. So I then, uh, you know, I wasn't doing the best I could do either with, you know, with uh, going to the doctor. Every year. I go when I need to. But with my dad, we now have a pack where we go twice a year. Each, and he goes twice. I go twice with him just because I show him kind of, you know, that I'm going to be healthy. He's going to be healthy. So the care was crazy during that process. But what you found is the caretakers, and Trenton, you know this well, with your brother and you, and everybody else, the caretakers are the ones that kind of stressed it out. My sister stressed out, but we all came back home. So I was the doctor. My mom was the chef. My middle sister was the organic food person. My younger sister was the baby, and she took care of all the cleaning stuff like that. So we put together a strategic plan, basically with my dad. We had a, we had a nutritionist. We had everything we needed at our disposal at University of Virginia Hospital, and within two years it was a two-year process with two two hernia surgeries removal of the left lung and then prostate radiation it took us two years to get him right but we got him right he's 84 no medication whatsoever and don't want to see well wow wonderful wonderful so it's great it's the way it works i know we i know i know our healthcare stinks and we're going to make a change about that now because hopefully with this new election we'll have some people who really want to make universal health care available for people mm-hmm. because again as you can see with the pandemic that in terms of african americans we are like i mean we're like 30 percent of the pandemic is right. life yeah. and death is us you know yeah. because and and to explain to your audience sometime because what happened with the tuskegee experiment yep. back in I think it was in the 40s or 20s or something yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. They had a Tuskegee experiment that they injected black males with syphilis and mm-hmm. they sent them out into the community for destruction. Spread it and kill off everybody. So there's that fear that, you know, you can, and, and then from where my neck of the woods, I know you were up north compared to me. I, I was born in Silver City, Mississippi, and where there's no silver. You know, <laughs> no silver, so, no gold. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like 375 people. So, mm-hmm. you know, they castrated the hogs, but they would castrate us too as well. So there's this fear and there's all of mm-hmm. this, this stuff going on in our head about, you know, healthcare. I mean, they're going to poison me. They're going to do something to me, which is myth. It's like mythological stuff, but it's not really factual. And so 
Now, how do we continue to educate these people, our people, and all people? Because, I mean, it's not just the prostate cancer is not just the black men, but we right. have a higher ratio. But uh, it's all men, all of us going to dance with it. So, I mean, I mean yep. the ratio is crazy just because of the, uh, I mean, in the, you know, it used to be the African-American neighborhood. We all grew up in one for mm -hmm. sure, and that was the suburbs. And now that neighborhood is gentrified and diversified, and it's people of all cultures in small town Harrisonburg, big city, Detroit, anywhere else as well. But I was in Southern California, in Orange County, and I went to a hospital called Hogue Hospital. And I had an x-ray of my body, and it gave them a 365-degree x-ray on a MRI machine mm -hmm. that the doctor could turn and look at and see if you had any elements in there. Even women with uh, breast cancer, whether they could turn it right there and they could do it right there on the machine. They had to wait six weeks to see what it might be. Right. So the equipment is crazy in the bigger hospital because they can financially afford it, yeah. but also they got the best doctors as well. So that's a, a huge divide in this country. I mean, my dad had radiation in a small hospital mm -hmm. and the radiation machine was on the back of a tractor trailer because they didn't, couldn't afford the machine. Now we have a hope fund in my dad's honor. We raised about $300,000. with my mother. It's crazy. You know what I'm talking about. So mm. my, I, mean, I got a small hospital with a tractor trailer and the, and the freaking machine doesn't work. And he got to have these this treatment five days a week before he gets treated. So mm -hmm. it, it's just crazy that we're one of the most, the most powerful country in the world. And the thing that's going on in the country this year just shows how weak we are. Yeah. Well, th there are some huge inequities in this country in uh, a variety of different areas. But of course, healthcare is first and foremost. And Spencer, as you said, hopefully with this new administration, uh, things will start to get back on track and there'll be a bigger vote of confidence in the general public. But what you guys are doing here today and what we're trying to do by partnering with Movember is the first step is raising awareness and erasing the stigma of talking about your health, because this is something that guys don't generally do, you know, talk about your physical health, your emotional health health, your mental health. And that is the first step in the process is taking some ownership of it yourself. There are definitely uh, inequities and, uh, you know, it's it's not equal for everyone, the quality of care that is available. And hopefully that does change. But definitely talking about it is step one. And, and that's why we appreciate you joining us to do that here today. Okay, well, let me just uh, uh tell you a little bit about my, my mental health situation. Yeah, please. All right. In 1980, when I was with the Lakers, I fell in. The who? The Lakers. The say. Lakers, I know. <laughs> you beat us the next year. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I fell into the, the journey of substance abuse, and my use was uh, cocaine. And uh, I watched myself go to the Lakers, averaging from New Orleans, averaging 24 points, 12 rebounds a game. And by mid-season, I was down to seven points and five rebounds. And by the end of the season, I was a shell of myself because I was smoking. Uh, they said crack, but it was back then, it was supposed to be the end thing, cocaine. Mm -hmm. And so I watched myself do that. And then I, I struggled with it for a few more years. And then I decided to go in and get treatment. And once I, I went to treatment, I went in for a 30 day period and I thought I was really on my way out. And one of these old heads came up to me and says, you ain't gonna survive and uh, uh, out there if you, don't, if you don't do something different. So I did another 30 days and then I had my car shipped out 
because I was in one of these snooty places in, in San Francisco. And I drove all the way across country making meetings, 12-step meetings, 12-step meetings, every place mm-hmm. and every day. And I got to Mississippi where I was born and I sat on the bank of the river in Civil City, Mississippi. And I was wondering, how did I get on the top of everything and let this one here trick me like this? Mm -hmm. Because I had seen my brothers and sisters. I had seen death in my family from alcoholism. And, but I was like, no, I'm going to just do my weed and maybe some coke. I'm good. So I ain't, I'm not drinking like you guys are. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pretty good. So then I, I once I, I did my treatment and got everything on, on footage, my footage, I, I just never did um, feel, felt comfortable in my skin. So mm-hmm. I, I started to see a psychiatrist and and my first wife, Iman, was like, you know, you got to go see a psychiatrist, you know, and I was like, a psychiatrist, a psychologist. What, talking what about is that? that? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going nowhere near that. So I then I ended up going. Mm. And once I went and I just started dumping all my stuff and everything about the, uh, you know, like how the NBA treated me through court systems and everything mm-hmm. else. And, and he was like, please, you got to come here every week. And so <laughs> I started coming every week and I started just dumping it. And, and lo and behold, over time, I started to heal, and then I started uh, set up my foundation in Detroit, where we, where I chaired those meetings, and, and we had psychologists on staff who would come in and do this through my current wife Linda, and because she was in the healthcare industry with Blue Cross Blue Shield as an executive, and so, a long story short, I'm making a long story, uh, short story long, or whatever. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we, I ended up just getting my mental health state uh, state of mind in a good place. And I, I continually uh, feel that with the joy and everything because I, 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 I didn't know. And lo and behold, my daughter, Shakira, who's here now, uh, she's 29 years old and going into her 30th birthday. She's a psychologist. Oh. Oh. Yeah, you got, you got a double-edged sword there, bro. Double-edged sword, sword, you know what I mean? So mm. uh, mental health, man, is just so important for us to look at because and just understand and talk about it because we suppress so much inside. Mm. You know, as a basketball player, Ralph, you know, I was talking with uh, Dr. Parnas, I think it is, yeah. from the head of the Players yeah, yeah, Association yeah. Medical, and, and I was telling him that Boy, if I had mental health available for me as a player, I would have played for 20 years. I would have been a different kind of player because I would have loved to have had somebody tell me, man, I mean, when I would miss a free throw and the game was on the line, I mean, I would take that with me inside me and it would it would stick, stick around for 10 games. I'm like, I could have done this here. No, man. <laughs> so I think that players could, could easily benefit from it. And I know the African-American community with all of the ups and downs that are going on now and all communities can, can could really benefit from it. So I'm just, I'm just happy to be on this podcast with you because what you're talking about and what you're presenting today is like, I'm one of those people who have, who have learned and have gotten myself together and healed myself. To some degree, I ain't gonna never be. <laughs> oh, you You good? I'm better. And so, you know, as as when we were like giving back, Ralph. You know, 
like the room, remember when everybody it was calling all of the Hall of Famers, like we're going out to Florida in the Immaculata. Immaculata? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and the only two of us, you know, two of us showed up, <laughs> me and Ralph. <laughs> because <laughs> we're basically you know we're just these kind of guys so we went out there man we put on a camp for all yep, of yep, those yep, young yep. young mexican kids who are the fruit, fruit pickers of the yep, yep, yep. and we had such a good time and now I look at like how that whole community is nearly got wiped out by covid absolutely so, the whole community so it's kind of great it was, it was a good event and good era good, good people event. but yeah, uh, they got wiped out by covid yeah, we are always the ones who show yep. up in Phoenix and every yep. place because we give back. And if you yeah. know, and there's more you give back, the more you receive because your hands are open. Mm -hmm. and well, like you said, there, there's, there was always a core, still is, uh, you know. And then you know, we we all respect Jerry Colangelo, but also the Hall of Fame, but also the NBA that we love and play that right. So there's not a lot of people that do that right. And it's not that we do it for the money, obviously. We do it for the for just the joy of giving back, and it used to be you, me, artist Moses, Nancy right. Lee, Moses. the core group oh, of us right. that went to every event, every golf tournament, uh, and obviously the godmother of the NBA, Fran. She always took good care of us. So, uh, obviously, I appreciate the time we we got to know each other because it's been very special for me to not only know your story but also be your friend and and you know, and, and, and 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 as a brother in the basketball world as well as a person, but. I'm going back to the, the drug stuff because that's married near and dear to my heart due to a cousin of mine that ended up, he was the baddest basketball player in the state of Virginia. And mm -hmm. uh, he got caught on drugs and the whole deal. And um, he, you know, so he didn't get out of his situation uh, at all because he ended up killing himself. Yeah. Uh, and we were at an event uh, together when I got the call that he has just shot himself. So he was had those demons in him, mental health and yeah. drug abuse issue. From from way back when, so I always would tell him. My mother made my cousin, his brother, drive me from Harrisburg, Virginia, when I was in high school, to Boston, and see him in a jail cell in the penitentiary. Mm -hmm. And drove, I brought him to Houston with me and put him in John Lucas's rehab. And yeah, yeah. John Lucas's rehab. You know, you pay a lot of money for that, and it still wasn't good enough for him because he went. He kept going back on it, and those demons kept hunting. And I would ask him, "What is it going to take?" What's that, what would be the aha moment when you know you got to stop? You know, we all experience that. What is that moment where you know, you know, you got to turn the corner and do something? What was that for you? Uh, it, it was for, you know, um, I mean, I just had finished up. Uh, I was playing with Washington. I was like clean. I was like sober. And John was my point guard. John mm -hmm. Lucas was yep, my yep. point guard. So we were, and then we would go out and dab a little bit and i'm sure you know me talking yeah, no, about yeah. it's not gonna you know her job because he's got a center for it right right so, um and then eventually my wife at the time iman she was in an automobile accident i had to retire from basketball because i didn't know how to approach the nba i need this break because i have uh her sister her younger sister two of them and a brother living with me and they are Somalians, they're East mm -hmm. Africans. And also we have a young daughter that's three years old, four years old at the time. And so I needed space. And so I, I, I came home and I, and I kind of got disillusioned about once she got well and everything, I started playing golf. I did tennis, I did everything, but 
then I was never, never quite comfortable in my skin. And that's when we sat down as a family and I decided to do something about it because I just was, I was on my way back to where I had been yep. before. And I don't, I never wanted to go there because I know my next step was death because my first hit was like my last. So mm -hmm. I was never going to be a, a in between. And mm -hmm. so I, I just started getting some treatment because I, I just wanted, I didn't want to be living in that lifestyle, the shame of it all. And so I, uh, I, I made the step to get yeah, involved, yeah. And, yeah. It, and it took a little bit. It took a minute. It took a minute. Yeah. It took a minute. Okay. It took a, a, not more than a minute. <laughs> <laughs> two minutes. Two minutes. So, so I, I decided to uh, do something about it because, I, again, like I said, I have lost two sisters, two brothers to alcoholism, mm -hmm. yep. and I know the disease is in my family because a lot of this is hereditary too, and it's right. in, our, in our genes. So. I just didn't want to go down that road. I, I wanted to make a difference. And I have a young, had a young daughter. So then I married my wife, my current wife, Linda. And she's like, you know, the, in the healthcare industry, she's like, she see all of this. She write policy and she mm -hmm. do all of this thing. So I just wanted to live a normal life. So I went back home. I couldn't stay in New York. And that's when Iman and I decided to get a divorce because I couldn't, I couldn't survive in New York. Right, I would right. be right back in wet places, wet faces, I would be mm -hmm. right back into it. So I, I, I came home, I had my, my mom who raised me, not my real mom, because I was adopted and raised in Detroit. And Will Robinson, who was yeah, yeah, yeah. assistant, he raised me as well. That's my dad. Yeah. Yeah. So I had family, I had support. My brother is there, Leroy. So I had all of this family around. So they were like, you know, you ain't gonna make no mistakes here with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I had that support system. And then, you know, I just kept growing from that experience. Yeah, I mean, you talk about this. You, talk you know, Ralph, yeah. for one thing, we normally, we don't allow some time when we are in this addiction. We always like want to hit rock bottom, be on the street, dragging around. We don't have to do that. You know? No, we don't have to do that. We can that. raise that bottom. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you, you talk about support and you talk about raising rock bottom. So, you know, in talking to the guys in NBA and baseball, football, and basketball, I was on a, a call recently with a Gene Banks and a Phil Ford and those type of guys as well. And then, you know, I tell them as well, you know, you were iconic when you played. You know, you, you were number one pick, you were this, that, and the other. But now you're only iconic in your neighborhood. And it's hard to stop hearing those claps, right? It's hard to stop hearing that. The energy. My body's filled in filled in October. Like right now, I should be playing basketball. My mindset, but my body won't do it. Right, just from that yeah. standpoint. But it's crazy how you say that. But you know, then I look at John Lucas and what he's done, my cousin, and having that support system is crucial. You know, with, within us as well as you know the world, because they don't know what we go through. I mean, they, they haven't experienced the cheers of the crowd and the red carpet rolled out. Then all of a sudden, you got to come off that ladder. You know, for me, it was a hard two years after retirement, but I yeah. knew I was I was ready to do it. Yeah. But that adjustment is is dangerous because you will go into some type of depression. You will go into some type of mental health issue. And I was fortunate because when I was at UVA, we had a guy named Bob Rotella, now one of the world gurus in sports psychology that started at University of Virginia with me. Okay. So he kind of helped me out. Oh. And then when I called him back. I'm not alone. Yeah, I'm not alone. <laughs> not, you know, I mean, but, you know, we just, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't do all the stuff, but you can, you can go left real quick. Yeah. You know, you can go left real quick because, yeah, because you, we, we live under structured life. We yeah. got like practice. We got like 
schedule. Bacon, eggs, or whatever you eat in the morning. You eat your lunch. Yep. You got the pregame. You eat, and then you got to finish the game. You got another. You know, you eat your dinner. You then you go sleep. You ready for the next one? Then you're training all off season, getting mm -hmm. ready for the next season, and then all of a sudden you are like, I was 34, 33 years old. I mean, it's like stop. Yeah, it's completely I mean, like, stop. So so. Take, take into consideration how good would we have been today on private planes and food today? I mean, it, come on. I mean, how good we would have been today? And and then th their ladder is so high now, especially with social media. They're going to, when they fall, they're going to fall harder than we have. Yeah. But the idea, though, that they got planes, they got your meals prepared. Everything. Everything. And we were like traveling. We were traveling. I was, I know my, my early years, we were, we were flying a coach and then we were like we moved up to first class and then we were like you know like you played that night and you had to get up at six o'clock in the morning to be on the next flight to the next city and you better you have your you better have your shoes in your uniform with you because you'll get fired if you don't have it right? <laughs> there you go so you had you know, so it was a, a different lifestyle so let's talk about like ref since we're talking about these current guys <laughs> go for it all right okay. You know, my opinion, uh, these young players have elevated the game to another level, I'm thinking, because they have the European players, they have different players. They have 30 teams, whereas when I came in, we had like 14 teams. And until I won my case, Hayward versus the NBA, which broke the four-year rule, uh, then we start to expand. But they have all of these these sports psychologists. They have all of these training. They have special chambers they put in. You know, they can you can preserve your body. Mm -hmm. So, looking back on it, let's go down to the Mount Rushmore <laughs> and see who we who would we have on that Mount Rushmore. All right. Today. And I'll give you my Mount Rushmore, and you tell me yours. Okay, you want me to go first or you want to go yeah, first? Yeah, you go first because I know you're gonna have all centers on it. So <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yeah, I would be point guard on that on that crew, so good. Yeah. <laughs> but no, so and so if you're talking about the whole NBA, and I know it's everybody says who's always the best, and you gotta go in, you know, eras and who's all the right. best in this era, that era as well. And it makes me uh, very frustrated when they talk about the era because I think at the NBA and the Hall of Fame, we need to do a better job and understand the history of the league. And put it out to to work because these guys right now are standing on the shoulders of there's always the book standing on the shoulders of giants yourself kareem will you know bill uh they they paved the way there's they, four, those there's guys as you just mentioned but go ahead <laughs> I, I can get one more i can get one more but but you know they they, 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 they we're the tallest people in the room so it's good yeah. but so you know my my uh my story is i'm, I'm taking oscar at point oh you know um, you know, he, he's triple double guy, whatever. Uh, I like Wilt at center, yeah, uh, just because he has. I like Bill Russell at power forward, right? I like, I like, um, you know, you can, you can, you know, the two and the three. I mean, I'm a big Julius Irving fan, uh, just because of the era. The if it wasn't for the doctor and Elgin Bell and people like that, yourself, whatever. Ain't no Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron. Yeah, nobody. You got to take one of those. You, you can't just leave Elgin off. You gonna, no, you well, gonna I, got, I, got, I, got, I, got, I got Doc and Elgin. Okay. And, and, and Oscar at Point and, and, and Weldon Bill. Ooh, that's, that's my old good. school. That's my old All school. Right. 
my choice would be I'm putting the king on top of the, the mountain. I'm putting okay. LeBron up there. <laughs> wow. That's a debate, but okay. I know. And then I'm going to put Jordan okay. on my team. I'm going to put Kareem at center. Okay. And then I'm going to put Larry Bird at my small forward. Okay. And the big forward, I, I, I sometimes play around with Tim Duncan. I mm. play around with the idea. But I, I like Carl Malone at that. Yeah, absolutely. Position. Absolutely. Mm. You can't miss Carl. At my point, I, I'll take Magic Johnson any day. Okay. Well, you know, it's a different. I, I went old school era. You went middle school era. So, yeah, you know, I, I get it. And then you threw LeBron and you threw LeBron in the new school. So it's good. Yeah, you wouldn't take so 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 Shaquille O'Neal or Will Chamberlain. I saw Shaquille post something and he left Will out of the equation. He put Shaquille O'Neal starting Kareem at the power forward. Shaquille O'Neal or, or, or Wilt? Shaquille or Wilt? Yeah. Well, I'm like, you know, when when he was debating uh, what's his name? Uh, I know Wilt. I, exactly. That's why I had the question. Will. Uh -huh. Wilt Chamberlain was a was a massive phenom, and he was something special. He was a track star. He was a basketball I jumped seven star. Foot. Yep. He was a volleyball player. I mean, this is the prototype athlete of his time. So I'm going to take Wilt over over Shaq. But Shaq was a bad dude. Now, no, I'm not the spirit of Shaq was a bad dude. But I'm just saying Wilt, the dynamic. No. Athlete, uh, 100 points. I mean, no, his, 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 if you look at the record books, Will Chamberlain holds all of the crazy records that will never be broken Wait. from 100 points in a game to 55 rebounds in a game to the fact that I think he never found he out. He averaged 50 one year, didn't he? he yeah, he averaged 50 points in a season. I mean, yeah. this oh, stuff season. that will never happen. Oh, yeah. 50 points in a season? It's, it's wild. Yeah. It's wild. Well, yeah, Ralph yeah. mentioned – yeah, go ahead, Spencer. Yeah, I always wondered, you know – because you were a great college player and in and, and that period, I always wondered, why did you stay for four years? Especially if I knew what I know today, I'd have came on out. Okay. okay. You know, so uh, just one of those questions. I always those, so, so I'm I was like, this guy is the number one player for three years in a row. I'm like, could I? Well, you know, so, so, so <laughs> go back to that era, you know, so coming out of high school, I could have come out, yeah. But I was like 185 pounds. I wasn't ready physically. I mean, you talking about Kareem? You talking about Moses? You talking about Artis Gilmore? You talking about the big centers, right? Uh, yeah. Power forwards and Maurice Lucas, stuff like that. And then coming out in my uh, uh, freshman year in college, we played against Kevin McHale in Minnesota in NIT and won that. Brad yeah. Arback comes to my parents' house, puts a million dollars in the briefcase, say, "Come on out, and play for the mighty Boston Celtics." I turned him down. I wasn't ready. So. <laughs> But Cal wouldn't have gone to Boston at that point in time. So it's great. OMG. I, I stayed I stayed another year. We go to the finals. We go to the NCAA finals. We lose to, um, uh, I would say, Al Wood, Michael Jordan, in the semifinals when Reagan got shot up in Philadelphia. Yeah. So we, we did that. 
and I could have came out then. I probably should have came out that year, mm -hmm. uh, but then that was a year where um, uh, Worthy wouldn't have went to the Lakers. Mm. And then the next year I could have came out and Isaiah wouldn't have went to the Pistons. But it was a coin flip. So I didn't know, I didn't want to go to Indiana. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to take my chances, but I know how it is. So I tell people all the time, why did Patrick Ewing get to the Knicks? Was that fixed, rigged or what? Man, Jason has talked about that mm -hmm. before. So what I know today is I'd have came out early because, you know, the timing should have been right and I'd have played with Magic and, and Kareem and all that in LA. I should have came out that year. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then I wouldn't have made the squad. No. Well, you you've been on it. You've been there. You've been somewhere. So you would have had my spot because you know you were this versatile <laughs> player that could play three, four, and five. And most people don't know that about you. But I mean, we always used to when we used to do scouting. We were like, man, this brother here can play three, four, and five. Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, they wouldn't let me. They wouldn't let me play that. No, I can I play it in college. They had the chops to do it. I mean, yeah, it's just that old era when we used to go, big guys go down on the block and you will throw it into you. Don't turn around. You yeah. get the ball. Back to the <laughs> basket. Yeah. Well, Spencer, you bring up a good question. Why did Ralph stay in college all four years? Because that's a question that was only possible because of you, because of the Spencer Haywood rule. And not as many people really uh, know your story. And I feel that you're one of the most underappreciated figures uh, in basketball for that reason. There's an incredible new book that's out right now by Mark Spears and Gary Washburn called The Spencer Haywood Rule. And would you just tell us a little bit? I mean, I could tell it for you. I, I, I know the story, you know, but obviously it'd be better to hear it from you. Uh, you were a, a bad MF, you know, you were ready to go to the NBA. <laughs> out of high school, you were ready to go uh, your first year out of college, second year out of college, but you couldn't, you weren't allowed. So you went to the ABA. So talk uh, us through that process because really you paved the way for so many players from, from Moses well, Malone to Kobe to LeBron and, and yeah. you know, well, so forth. Uh, my, my, my gardener is coming around and he's got a loud. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> what happened was in 19... Uh, seven, 60, 68, mm. the Olympic year was coming up. Um, I was a freshman at this junior college in Colorado, on the border of Colorado and New Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar boycotted. He said, I'm not going to the 68 Olympics. Uh, Wes Sunsell and Elvin Hayes signed their pro contracts, which made yep. them ineligible for the for, for the amateur games that were being played in Mexico City. So in order to keep the junior college elite players from suing the Olympic committee, they, they put together hastily a junior college team coached by Jerry Tarkini. Mm. Talk to Jerry brought us, Yeah, Jerry brought us down to Albuquerque and we played against all of the, the yep. NCAA guys, Division One, Division Two and the military, AAU. AAU was very big back then. Mm -hmm. They had the Akron Goodyear. These, these were professional as well, but they wasn't professional, professional. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Hank Iber saw me play and he was like, oh my God, I got the solution here. And I was like, I thought I was coming down here to get me some gear. 
you know, with USA on it, and so I can go back to my boys in Detroit and like, you know, I, I wouldn't try it out, bro. And so I was for, I was the first player picked, and being the first player picked, I was like, oh my god, what am I gonna do about? What am I gonna do now? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we had a big problem because they asked for all of us to have the birth certificate. No. Oh. And I didn't have a birth certificate because I was born mm -hmm. in Silver City, Mississippi, where there's. Ain't no city, and it ain't no silver. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they call the grocery store. My mother runs over to the grocery store and says, yeah, I got his, I got his birth certificate right here. It's in the Bible under John 21. <laughs> so the Olympic Committee had to go and shoot a, uh, a picture of it. And they took it down to the Jackson, Jackson Daily News and all of the people in Jackson, Mississippi, and they created this birth certificate. And then I went and played. Uh, in that Olympics in 68, I set records, uh, mm -hmm. the most points in the history of the game, the most rebounds. And I still own the highest field goal percentage. But if you were mm -hmm. playing, it wouldn't be. <laughs> and you, shot, you, shot, you, shot, you shot the ball every time you saw it. You get no, it. I didn't. I shot seven. You I, ain't was, got I, was, I was down low. <laughs> 72 percent 72 percent but you don't have any assist records i do <laughs> yeah watch head. it ralph <laughs> in my head oh yeah there you go, there you go. <laughs> so the following year I, I i leave from uh from the trinidad because i had to be average to go to the university of detroit where i was an all-american uh first team with kareem mm -hmm. calvin murphy pete maverich and rick mount and I'll put these numbers up. Calvin Murphy was averaging, no, no. Uh, Pete Maverick averaged 44 a game. Mm -hmm. Rick Mount was averaging, oh, was it from Purdue, 39. Calvin Murphy was averaging 33. And I was averaging 32 from the university. And Kareem was averaging 29. So that was- How is that possible? Yeah, exactly. I know, man. Man, we were balling. <laughs> Hardcore bros. Yeah. So, oh, I know, with Murphy. So what happened was the NBA, went out and drafted Kareem number one. And the ABA was, was fledgling, so they were like looking for some kind of gimmick. So they said, well, Hannah Storm's father was the public relations person, mm -hmm. Mike Storm for the ABA. And he said, let's sign Spencer Haywood. We're gonna get a lot of attention to the <laughs> ABA. And if he can get, you know, like seven points and maybe five rebounds, the gamut would work. We can go out and get all of the underclassmen. So I did 30 and 20 that year for 82. Man. And I was the rookie of the year, leading scorer, leading rebounder, MVP of the All-Star game. And I was 19 years old. And MVP so, of the season as well. For the season, yeah. So yeah. all of a sudden, they give me a contract, Ralph the highest paid player in the history of the ABA, blah, blah, and, and professional basketball. But it was a fraudulent contract. They gave yep, me a yep, contract yep. that said, all right, you get paid uh, the half a million dollars for playing now, and then we will give you the one point, uh, the, the one point five, four on a dog off plan where we will put uh, <laughs> $10,000 into this, annuity on mm. wall street and when you get to be age 50 to age 70 is when you, you draw big money but here's a caveat you have to be employed by ringsby truck line who own the rocket so i go in here and so we go in i get an attorney and i said oh my god this is terrible 
So I go in with my attorney, uh, Al Ross, which is this Jewish guy. We go in, we're going to like, we're going to straighten this contract out. Mm. So we go into the owners and say, hey, look, we need to straighten this contract out. And he was like, hey, we got you under contract. You can't go back to college. You can't go to the NBA. So what are you going to do? And you get your <laughs> nigga ass out of here <laughs> and take that Jew lawyer with you. <laughs> wow. So I got my nigga ass out of the Jew lawyer with me. So <laughs> So Sam Schumann heard about this story and Jerry Colangelo. So they were like, wait a minute, maybe we should break the rules with the NBA because the NBA, we're losing ground with the ABA. If they, if they if all these guys coming in right after Spencer, Julius and everybody coming to the ABA, we got to have a gamut. So I petitioned for the rights to play in the NBA. And I was, I was had under contract with Seattle. The, the NBA, I mean, to the NBA, and the NBA sued me for breaking their four-year rule. So I walk out on this floor like, okay, I'm going to play tonight. And they were like, ladies and gentlemen, we have an illegal player on the floor. <laughs> wow. And this game is on the protest. So they, 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 they had me on a game of protest for 10, 10 games. And then I got an injunction to play. And then I played for 10 games. And then the next time they got an injunction for me not to play, I set out for another 10 games. Mm -hmm. And then the next time I, I got an injunction to play, we were, had made it all the way to Cincinnati. We play in Cincinnati Royals, Oscar and all them people. And so they had an injunction that read, ladies and gentlemen, he must be escorted off the grounds in which this arena sat on. So they put my butt out into the snow and I was freezing. Wow. Wow. I'm 20 years old, like, oh man, what did I do wrong? Wow. And so finally we work our way all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And that's when I won my case under the Sherman Antitrust Act. But now remember the union did not support me. Right. Because they had told the older players, Wilt and Jerry West and all, don't support him because he's going to bring all these young guys in and he's going to push you all out. Yeah, They didn't support me. So I won the case and then Kareem uh, wanted to bit, bust me up a bit. So he said, I'm not going downstairs because all the players would go downstairs into the locker room while I'm on the floor waiting for the game to start. And Kareem wouldn't do it. He said, well, me and this, me and Wood is going to go at it tonight. You know, yeah. I always knew I was going to bust him up good. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to bust you up good. So we talking a lot of smack talk, standing in the middle of the floor in Milwaukee, in the press, taking pictures and listening to this crazy talk. And then all the players came out, let's play, man. Let's do yeah. it. And so that's how my whole case ended up at the Supreme Court. And I won it. So it was mm. what it was. It was before I came along, you had to wait for four years after your high school class had graduated before you could enter into the NBA. Now right. we look at the numbers today of how says how many players, how much money, how much revenue was, was driven by that. Yep. We're looking at $30 billion in player contract revenue. Wow. Wow. And we're looking at for the ownership, they have like a $25 billion ownership because the teams were only worth before I broke that rule, they were only worth a half a billion dollars. And so now it's averaging three to two billion. So mm -hmm. I have all of this empowerment with everybody. And for all did, you get, did, you get your, did you get your royalty check? No. <laughs> no, no, no. So mm -hmm. the league and, and the NC2A and everybody looked at me as this uh, radical 
person that is, you know, that did something. So for years and years, I had to wait on the sideline to even go into the Hall of Fame, everything. Right, right, yeah. Yep. Then uh, it lifted when um, David Stern, and he said, well, hey, you know, I'm going to help Spencer get this book deal. We're going to tell this story. This is part of our history. Yeah. We're going. And then Adam joined in and Kathy Barons and everybody from the league and from NC2A, Jerry Colangelo, the Godfather, everybody said, let's let him, let's, 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 let's acknowledge what he has done. And yeah. so now yeah. I, this is my glory time. No, it is, it is, yeah. And you know, I, I look at what, who I was with in the court. Uh, I was at Muhammad Ali was there, uh, Kurt Flood was there. And then when I saw Kurt Flood, when he left the country, baseball, he was still baseball for the yeah. rest to move from one team to the other. When he came back, I look at him, he was like an old man, but not an old man. He was like, you know, like in his 50s, 60s or whatever. Yeah. But he looked so old. And the same thing when I met Jackie Robinson. Man, Jackie was like 55 years old, but his hair was gray. He looked so old because, mm. of, you know, when you stand up like this and do something, the system put you through hell. And the mm -hmm. same thing with Ali. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I always said, well, I guess I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray and I'm going to eat right. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to try to be around to celebrate this period. And so now the NBA and the PA is looking to change the name of early entry, one and done, all of this to the Spencer Haywood rule. There you go. That's the book. Yeah. Yes. So, then, so go, I'm curious because those days as well, because of what's happening in the world today with Black Lives Matters and the movements and stuff like this as well. And I've talked to Cream early on about this, but obviously you know how Cream is. He might not talk too much these days. But uh, the, the racism back in those days, what did, what, I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I look at my experiences at UVA. Uh, I spoke to Cedric Maxwell the other day, trying to get him, you know, on this as well. But he reminded me of a situation when I played the Rockets, and I can only imagine your experiences as well. As well, but I played the Rockets. We are going to the championship. I got in a fight with Jerry Season and Danny Ainge on the court in Houston because I didn't want to lose. I go to Boston, and in the rafters because they had already had death threats on me, and I had to take two bodyguards with me and get them mm -hmm. off the floor and this and the other. And they had this stuffed animal basically with uh, socks and a jersey 50 and, and a black face and, a, and an afro on it on a noose hanging from the boston garden so he reminded me of that story but what did you see back in those days because you know it's, it's 400 years everybody talks about this stuff, stuff now but i got some other points i want to make but what back in those days what did you feel what you see from a racism standpoint well i, I experienced racism at its max because i, I was you know, from a racist town in Silver City. And even though I, I, I was raised in Detroit, I, I, I had experienced it. And as a player, I mean, they beat me down for years. You know, you messed up college basketball, as we know, and the coaches were against me all of those years until like 2015. Mm -hmm. And the NC2A coaches and, and all of the NC2A, I, they didn't speak to me. And even though I was their Olympic hero, <laughs> Mm -hmm. And they're college All-American, but they just yeah. never, they never respected me. And so uh, teams didn't, didn't, didn't respect me. They, they had a lot of hateful things they did to me, but I had visited it all in Mississippi. So I was like kind of used to it, but not used to it ever. And, and so 
So just looking back on it, man, it was just horrible times, horrible times. But and then they tagged me as this so-called militant, which I was never. <laughs> My mother was picking cotton in Silver City, Mississippi, for two dollars a day. That's why I wanted to get her off of her knees. Her back head went out because she was dragging a sack of cotton for a hundred pounds, a hundred pounds of cotton, and she was lifting it. So her back head went out. She was crawling on the ground. And here I am making all of this money for the NC2A, for the Olympics and everybody. Mm -hmm. And my mother is dying on the ground. So I said, no, I'm fighting this case. And that's what I was doing it for. So, you know, I just look at it like now because I'm such a godly person in the sense that I believe that there's a higher power, that this God Almighty is like, has brought me through all of this. And, and with the mental health that I've been getting for years, I was never, never able to like lock in on hate and anger, all the stuff that was coming at me. Mm -hmm. Because I, I knew that if I stayed firm in my belief and not, and not in my own belief, but in God, I, I would be all right because I remember when I got high, I was like God. And my best thing was like, my I'm doing everything for me. I'm all right. And mm -hmm. So my best thinking got me into the worst trouble. So I've always believed that if I let go and let God's will be done, be done yeah, yeah. the mechanism around me, like mental health, uh, I'm, I'm pretty good. So what is, uh, I mean, that, that's an interesting story because I go back and reflect on stuff in my past as well. But, you know, you know, as we have this bond in, in the Hall of Fame and so forth, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we always go to these events, but you don't see the Magics and the Michaels go. And I, I have some serious, you know, differences with them sometimes. Like if you ever band together and, you know, people look at the African-American culture sometimes at this day, whatever, you have the baggy pants, the culture, but they don't want us to grow and get bigger and stronger and make things work. I was just told by an organization with the Minnesota Timberwolves that we want you to help us. We can be a part of the team, but we, all we want you to do is come and step and fetch it and wave in the stands and go in the community and the black community and support the community, but you don't want me to be an owner. So we'll stop on that later on, but how do you think that that can affect because you had it back in the day with Kareem and well, we always battle against each other, but we don't battle together. Never. So never. you see that. I was wondering your opinion about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I look at Magic and 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 Michael Jordan. They are both under the Spencer Haywood rule. Yes, absolutely. And they don't yeah. even I, I knew that. I, yeah. I go, Michael called me, he says so they would. I want to come out to dinner. I want you to come out to dinner with me. And I think it was in 2015 or something. So I'm 2016. So I'm going to hang out with Michael. He's going to like set my life. Michael, Michael in there talking about how did you mess up that Nike deal? Right. Because <laughs> I was a Nike first player and right, right. he just could not figure out how to get his 10%. He sold my stock. Right, so right. Was to the roof, but I didn't, I lost that one. So Mike is talking all that trash to me. And I was like, Michael, I thought you were coming to tell me how important I am to your life and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a nice long dinner and talked and had fun. But I just I just look at those guys as like, you know, they were sorted out to be ownership and to be a part of something different than what we were. Right. And so, um, you know, and, and those are those chosen people, you know. I, I always thought that Kareem should have been a little bit more active in his ownership, but most people did not understand Kareem was this 
decent person, a good person, because he never did talk that much. And he, right. he, did. he was talking some old deep shit about <laughs> <laughs> how the world was around. Right, right. And this and that. I'm like, Kareem, come on, man. You know, you know how you are with us. Be cool. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. So That's too funny. I always wondered too uh, why those guys never was there at, at our and the biggest event for all of us for the hall of fame just to yep. show that unity the social support the joy of being there because you know me you and moses and all we have a ball that, that's fun yeah yeah mm -hmm. so that was one of my things too i yeah. see you got larry bird behind you there yeah, yeah. that's yeah i have i got magic on the other end of larry over here so uh, that was in '86 when we went to the uh, finals, and he wanted to get the ball, but he couldn't. He couldn't get it. So <laughs> he's out there posing with that big long yeah, exactly. arm. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> How was it? What was it like playing with you and Elijah? One. How would y'all switch in and out on? on, on well, well, you know, I, I was there in 1983. He came in '84, so they came to me. The Rockets said, "Well, we want to draft a king. Are you wanting to move the power, power forward?" I said, "Sure," because I could. Run and jump and face the basket. The yeah, you said earlier you were like three, yeah, four, that was a five. Golden opportunity for me from that standpoint. And he had more, you know, the back to move baskets, and he was really raw at that point in time, right? So, you know, Moses taught a king, you know, and down to Fonda and wrecked the whole deal. But uh, they came there, and then we hooked up. <clears throat> Took us, you know, six months, uh, half a season to come together and try to figure out how we play together. Then we had the Bill Fitches of the world. They wouldn't let us run. They wouldn't let us go. Uh, and I'm like, okay, great. So our first season, you know, we in the locker room and Bill Fitz, you know, I made a statement in the paper, like they need to let us go, let us play. And we, you know, we had some, we had some horses, but they wouldn't let us go because they didn't want to win that fast. They was on their schedule, right? So mm -hmm. many came, got together and said, look, big fella, let's just go play. So I made a statement in the paper. Bill Fitz made me read it in the locker room with all the players, like we can't go this fast. And so forth. So the next year we came out and we said, okay, forget this mess. Let's just go play. And, you know, we, he would call a play on the sideline and we called different play on the court, you know, but we were winning and he couldn't say anything about it. Involves everything. Yeah. So we had a system like when we played, we, we loved to play against Kareem. So Akeem would play, body him up a little bit because he had a different center gravity I had and I could come black the sky hook. And Kareem knew that when we played each other. Mm -hmm. Magic knew it as well. So we could, we always called this double trouble because, you know, I could run and jump, he could run and jump, but we also could shoot outside. I could play the post, he could play the post. But, uh, you know, the Rockets were wrong. I mean, I got traded, obviously, in the, in the scheme of things. But we also, when we talked, we wish we'd have stayed together along. We'd have, we'd have won, you know, a whole lot of championships. We well, never, I mean, you guys had just knocked off the Lakers. Yeah, we never had a point. We, we, uh, we go into, hold on, you, you'll know this, though. We go into that season, into that championship, with no point guards. We had John Lucas, mm -hmm. Mitchell Wiggins, and Lewis Lloyd. God mm -hmm. bless Lewis Lloyd passed away, but they all had gone down with substance abuse, right? That's when the point forward came to fruition because they had Rodney McCray and Robert Love. Reed. Robert Reed. So at the point forward. So we we go down and uh and, and, and we played Alex English and Alex English and the crew in Denver in the seven-game series. It came and out, it came got kicked out, I got fouled out. We had Craig Elo, Granville Waiters, Rodney Craig, Robert Reed, Alan Love and the crew win that seven-game for us. Yeah. We go into the Lakers and uh, play, and then it was a really serious. We played the first game two days later. They killed us. They rode us. And Magnum them high five, and then, you know, whatever. we got two days off, and we <laughs> rode them for the next four games. So, you know, know. just kind of that short. But 
man, you could tell yourself, well, big fella, you made us mad, so we won back-to-back -back championships the next two years. I said, okay, well, you, you got that one for sure. You, you, so. got the, you can do that, but you, I, I, I always was wondering, why did y'all disrupt, I mean, disband that team? I was like, yeah, well, yeah. That, 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 that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen because, I mean, you were just there. Yeah, we were just getting there. Yeah, we just getting getting we were just getting going. Yeah. Just getting going. And then it took them, you know, another five years or so, six years, you know, recovering and then went back to back with Clyde and, and that crew, but it took them a minute to recover for sure. But mm -hmm. it, it it was a fun ride when we played together. We talk about it. Yes, you had a different coach there. You know, Bill Fitch was not the coach no. for you guys. If you had no. had Rudy Tom Jonovich yeah. at the twenty time. But when we were there, I mean Rudy was a scout. Yeah. Rudy never came to practice. We we would we wanted Rudy, but Rudy came. Rudy was a scout, so he 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 did a scouting for years to became a coach. Yeah. And then Carol Dawson, God bless him, he was he was a Converse shoe salesman. He wasn't a coach. He was he sold Converse shoes, so he was one of our coaches with Bill Fitch. <laughs> wow. So it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, everybody remembers he like Dick Mon Dick Mon was a football coach. He wasn't a basketball coach. He was a football coach. So yeah. back in those days, there wasn't real guys that coached basketball. They just loved the game of sports. We love the game of sport. Like my my coach was, was the first black coach in ABA history. He was um, uh, John McLendon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. John McLendon uh, got terminated. They hired an ABA referee to coach the team. Yeah, yeah. And Joe Belmont coached Denver at that time. Wow. Yeah, we went all to the Western Conference because we didn't listen to a one word. That's, yeah, word word. <laughs> he, he called timeout. That's about all he could do. That's all he could do. <laughs> Makes himself the two huddle and look like he was coaching. Exactly. Well, they do that now with LeBron. They do that with LeBron now. He's the coach on the floor, so they, you know, they just let him go, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think players should have more to say about what's going on. I look at what's going on in your with your home team, Houston, yeah. there now. Uh, I mean, how do they make these decisions and they don't even talk to Westbrook or James Harden? I was like, well, okay, come on, you you know that you know I've been, we've been trying to try to get in the league for many many years, but you know they got uh, analytical guys from Harvard trying to dictate who's coaching and what this player should be doing, what their player shouldn't be doing. They got the analytical system in every ring and say, okay, Spencer, you can shoot only from that spot because your percentages are higher there. So it's a business decision, not a basketball decision. Yeah, but well, you know, we, we, basketball as we know it, because no, it's not. We don't get they don't get the knowledge that we're just talking right here on this show. They don't mm -hmm. get that kind of locker room knowledge. No, they, don't. they don't understand it, you know. And I don't know why they keep overlooking John Lucas, but hey, it happens. Yeah, I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's yeah. I thought he would get the Houston job anyway, but that's I just weird. Right? I mean, he, he yeah, deserves yeah. that. I mean, the shot at that to make it work for sure. Mm -hmm. he, he dedicated his life to the game, and 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 then he's good with players and guys and understand it. But that's just different for me. Yeah. Well, Spencer, thank you so much for sharing so much of your story with us here today. You've got an incredible story, and I'm glad that more people get to know it now and appreciate it with the Spencer Haywood rule, the fantastic book that's out on bookshelves. Now people should definitely check it out. I mean, your story is. Well, also uh, we got the movie on streaming on Amazon prime now as well. You can go and watch that. It is called oh, fantastic. Full Court, the Spencer Haywood story. Full Court. All right. Full yes, Court. I'm definitely going to check that out. I mean, people need to, to know your story, the things that you've accomplished, where you came from, uh, starting in Silver City, Mississippi, as you said, no silver and, and not a city. Ain't no city. With, <laughs> with your mom and nine siblings, you know, picking cotton and uh, to where you have and ended up. Slavery. 
yeah, indentured servitude, and you started there, and then playing, uh, you know, tearing through the the ABA, breaking barriers to play in the NBA, paving the way for everyone from Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, so many countless Michael other, Jordan, I mean everyone, yeah, exactly, paving the way for countless Hall of Famers and and basketball royalty because of you and the path that you you blazed and and what you did on the court and off the court and today opening up with us about your uh your battles with with mental health with substance abuse with addiction and and prostate cancer we really appreciate that um you know you opening up and sharing that because that's so important and and that is one great thing we see today from today's athletes much more open and honest about sharing their their issues and we see that and that's a good thing and and uh you know i'm glad that you were able to do that with us here today as well thank you so much Spencer, there's one thing we ask all our guests before we let you get out of here, and that's uh, giving you an opportunity to pay homage to someone who helped pave the way for you and all the success that you've had in your career and in your life. It could be a role model, a mentor, a family member, or it might be someone you've never even met before, but you admired and respected from afar who was really a role model to you. So Spencer Haywood, who do you want to pay homage to? I would like to pay homage to Bill Russell. Bill Russell was my- I told you, man, he's the best ever. (laughs) (laughs) Center. Bill Russell, I met Bill Russell when I was in high school in Detroit, and he was walking from Cobo Arena to the hotel, and I always was fascinated by him. And then when he came to Seattle as a coach, and he was my coach in Seattle and mentor, I mean, I was a little little wild and didn't want to listen too much, but- I mean, years later, we still have this father-son relationship and good relationship. So he's the godfather of all of this basketball stuff that we're talking about. He and Will Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. And so I pay yeah. homage to him. Yeah, and, and and Bill was my general manager when I got traded to Sacramento. And, we be, and so, I, you know, so father figure, I mean, I, I, I talk to his wife all the time, check on him. He's out in Palm Springs as well right now. Uh, oh, yeah. do a thing. So they live out there in the, in the, in the, in the wintertime. But yeah. one of the best yeah, ever. Seattle man in the, in the summertime. One, yeah, exactly. One of the best ever. That's sure. right. That's right. Well, two legends here today, Ralph Sampson and Spencer Haywood. Thank you so much for joining us here on Center Court. It's been an honor and a, a pleasure. Everyone go check out the Spencer Haywood rule and the Spencer Haywood story that's on Amazon. Well, Ralph, that was a great episode with the legendary Spencer Haywood. Man, he uh, he has no filter. He just tells it like it is. I, I respect that. Well, Jason, can you imagine a guy with that resume, uh, that pedigree, as good as he is, and, and, and he played, you know, as a rookie in the NBA and, and leagues and dominated, you know, from there to Olympics to whatever. But it took him so long to get to the Hall of Fame. Uh, and we talk about that. Why? You know, because of history or things around it, but uh, he's one of a kind guy. Uh, he's special. Uh, he's, uh, he just, he, 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 he wears his, his passion on his sleeve. He, mm-hmm. he played the game at a high level and all the things he's doing across the country now with his uh, nonprofit that he's working on, all his initiatives. I mean, I got to know him playing, playing golf, which me and him play golf alike, which we don't play well. Uh, but he's, he's a great guy. I mean, I, I can't say anything more about him than that, but uh, the friendship that we have is very special to me. 
He's, he's got some incredible stories. He has lived life to the fullest. He's experienced it all. He's blazed his own trail, his own path for so many others, uh, led the way. And it was great getting to know more about his story. And I hope everyone goes and checks out that book that we talked a lot about, The Spencer yeah, Hayward Rule. It sounds fantastic. And uh, I'm going to pick up a copy myself. Good holiday gift. Yeah, it's a good holiday. It's a good read as well. I'm sure I know some of the stories in there. But can you imagine, Jason, being you know, um, LeBron James or Zion, all these guys are coming out, whatever. They really don't know where that rule came up. Mm -hmm. So the history of the game, but how would you feel if you knew that as a player and you knew somebody like Spencer Haywood, you know, help you get with this, with this rule to the NBA? Well, and he wants the rule to be named that, the Spencer Haywood rule, so we can get a little more credit. I mean, we have different transactional rules that are named after people like your your Larry Bird rights. Why not call it the Spencer Haywood rule, you know, officially? So it gives him a little more due for paving the path that going all the way to Supreme Court and, and winning that case to be the first. Well, I'm sure we all know, understand the political realm of anything that we do, but it should be named after him as well, I do believe. And uh, everybody should understand how that impacted the game of basketball itself from, from the college level and the professional level because it only it impacted both, right? So guys could leave out of college, you know, early uh, to play, and typically that wasn't happening in those days. So, I, I mean, I, I'm up for that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Can't thank him enough for joining us, and we can't thank all of you out there for listening to another episode. We really appreciate all the support through all the episodes week in and week out. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be pausing here, so we hope everyone has uh, a happy holidays, and stay tuned for more updates on the future of Center Court and the entire Winner's Circle podcast network. Uh, more exciting things coming in 2021, and we cannot wait to be in 2021 and for 2020 to be done with yeah 2020 needs to be over and uh everybody stay safe out there 2021 is coming and uh, we look forward to great things in the new year it's going to be exciting ralph it's been a pleasure being your co-host here on center court you are a true hall of famer both on and off the court and uh it's always a blast getting to chat with you and all the entertaining guests that have come through well, you know, never know what the future holds. We'll continue to do the same thing together, I hope, and uh, make it happen. But I think some great things are happening, so we'll be looking forward to new things to come. Definitely. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another edition of Center Court. I'm Jason Zone Fisher signing off for Hall of Famer, Ralph Sampson. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.